Philippians 1, 18 to 26, hear the word of the Lord. And I'm picking up in the middle of verse 18. Yes, and I will rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance, as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet, which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. Let's pray. Now may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O God, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Novels or movies of suspense try to produce in us a question. And the more we ask that question, the better they are functioning. And the question is this, what's going to happen? And if you've ever tried to read a book like that or watch a movie with a, a, a young child, you keep getting that question throughout. Mom, Dad, what's going to happen? What's going to happen? And the answer is always, okay, you have to watch, you have to keep listening, and then we'll find out what's going to happen. But the idea of these is to keep us on the edge of our seat. What's going to happen? Dramatic events in life also cause us to ask that question, don't they? When things happen in life uh, that are out of the ordinary, uh, wars or rumors of wars, we ask, what's going to happen on the border between Ukraine and Russia, for example? Or a global pandemic strikes, and we ask, what's going to happen in the next weeks or days or months or even years? Or maybe the stock market takes a, a big plunge and we ask, what's going to happen? What's going to happen to my investment? Or whatever it might be, we want to know what's going to happen. Or down here, hasn't happened lately, but a hurricane is on the horizon and heading our way and we're asking what's going to happen to our home and to our city. We all want to know what's going to happen. In this section of Philippians, we have Paul telling us what's going to happen. And he talks about two outcomes that are certain to happen. And he talks about two outcomes that are possibilities. So he says two things are going to happen, and two things, one of two things, might happen. But I want you to notice that the two certain things that are going to happen don't depend on the possible outcomes. So the first things he talks about are the two certain outcomes in verses 18 to 20, and then in verses 21 to 26, we have two possible ways in which those certain outcomes could come about. So he doesn't know exactly how these outcomes are going to come about, he just knows that they will, and there are two possible ways that those certain outcomes will happen. Now, we're picking up in the middle of a verse, and... Um, Different Bibles have different chapter breaks, not chapter breaks, but rather paragraph breaks. And you'll see that in the Bible we're using here, 
it breaks in the middle of verse 18. And that, that's, a, that's a, a reasonable way to do it. Uh, verse 18, he says, he says, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. And our version puts a full stop there, and then it picks up, yes, and I will rejoice. So there's the rejoicing over the present circumstances and the planning to rejoice in the future. And so that's the, that's the transition here. This is a transitional verse. But I want you to notice that here's the, here's the idea here. This is the connection with last week. Not only would Paul rejoice in the fact that the gospel was going forth because of his adverse circumstances, but he would also rejoice because of the certain outcomes that would flow from his present circumstances. Remember, he was in prison, probably in Rome, during an imprisonment that would last uh, more than four years. So what is the first outcome that is absolutely certain and that caused joy in Paul even then when he was in prison? Verse seven, uh, 18 into 19. Yes, and I will rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this, that is my circumstances, this will turn out for my deliverance. Deliverance. Now, here's the translation question, and you'll see different versions translate this word deliverance in different ways. It is the word that is almost always translated salvation. Salvation. But the, the translators were a little leery about that, and so they, they kind of, they weren't sure what he was talking about. And it's a perfectly good translation, deliverance, as long as we take deliverance in its biggest signification. Now, if he's in prison and he's talking about his deliverance, we would normally think of what? Getting out of prison, right? And so they're, they're kind of saying that may be what he's talking about here, and that's why this translation. But I would argue in favor of the normal translation here that he is not thinking so much about his deliverance from prison, although that might or might not happen, and he goes on to say he was pretty sure that it would happen, but that's not his focus here. His focus is bigger than that. His focus is on salvation. And I want you to notice that he is saying that even as he relied on Jesus for his salvation, he was certain that his circumstances would also contribute to his salvation. So these are two sources of joy. His adverse circumstances, apparently adverse circumstances, were causing the gospel to go forth, and his adverse circumstances would also lead him towards ultimate salvation. So those are the two causes for joy. He also, I want you to notice something here, he also counted on other means for him to get to that end of salvation, and that was the prayers of the people and the Spirit of Jesus Christ. So he says, for I know, so my circumstances are moving me towards that ultimate goal of salvation. And in addition to that, your prayers and the Spirit of Jesus Christ. Here's another uh, question of translation. It says, and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ. It's the word that usually means provision, the provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ. And I think the best way to read this is, that the Spirit is that which is provided through the prayers of God's people. It's not just that the Spirit will help. The Spirit is given. The Spirit is provided through the prayers of God's people. And these two things are put together as if they were one complex thing. So he says, I know that through your prayers and the Holy Spirit, as if it were one thing. And that's significant because he's saying, how do I enjoy the Holy Spirit? 
How do I enjoy the robustness of the provision, which is the Holy Spirit? He's saying, through your prayers. And so all of these things, his circumstances are moving him towards salvation. The prayers of God's people enable him to enjoy the fullness of the Spirit, and those two are moving him towards salvation. Now, if this kind of language is curious to us, that is, if Paul's dependence on others for his full enjoyment of the Holy Spirit leading him to salvation sounds foreign to us, it's not because there's something strange about what Paul is saying, but rather there's something strange about our approach to Christianity, which in the West tends to be individualistic. We tend to think, God and I, or Jesus and I, or the Holy Spirit and I, we got this. We, we are okay. We are a complete team here, and we will get to our goal, which is just Jesus and I, or the Holy Spirit and I, I, I have all I need. But that's not how Paul treated this. Paul says, I am on this journey, and I count on your prayers for me to enjoy the provision of the Spirit leading me to salvation. This is a whole team effort that's going on here. So that's the first thing that he says is certain. My salvation is certain. But there are means to that salvation. Of course, the chief means of salvation is the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. That is the one who accomplished. That's the only ground of our salvation. That is the reason, the base of our salvation. And yet, our experience of this, as we go along the way, our circumstances move us along the way so we can rejoice in them. And we as brothers and sisters move each other along the way as we pray for each other and we enjoy the fullness of the Spirit. The second certain outcome was the magnification of Jesus in Paul's body. Verse 20, As it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage or full boldness, full boldness, usually this word is boldness to speak the gospel, with full boldness now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, in my body. So two things he was sure of, salvation and that Christ would be magnified through his body, in his body. And he contrasts this this magnification of Christ, this exaltation, glorification of Christ, with being ashamed. Now, being ashamed, what is being ashamed? He says, I will not be at all ashamed. I will not be put to shame. Usually we think of shame as being embarrassed, that we got, we got, we got caught doing something and we're, just, we're embarrassed about, uh, about something we did or didn't do. But it's actually much stronger in the Old Testament as well as in the New Testament. To be put to shame or to be ashamed is to be caught short before God in many circumstances, in many, in many texts. And let me just point out one in Romans chapter 10. Here Paul is quoting from the Old Testament and uh, he, says, he says this, verse 11 of chapter 10. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. So if you believe in Jesus, you won't be put to shame before God. You won't be found short. You won't be come up short before God. And then in verse 13, he says, For, and here he quotes the Old Testament again, Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And so everyone who trusts in him will not be put to shame. Everyone who calls on him will be saved. And so here we see that being put to shame is the opposite of being saved. So he's saying, I will not be put to shame but Christ will be magnified in my body. 
And then he says he would be magnified in his body, no matter what happened to his body. Whether he continued in prison, Christ would be magnified. If he was released and able to continue ministering, Christ would be magnified. If he was, if he was hung on a Roman cross, Christ would be magnified. He's saying, no matter what happens to my body, Christ will be magnified. So I am certain of my salvation and the magnification of Christ, and in this I rejoice. And then he gave us the key. And this, this very cryptic short statement here is one of the most famous and well-known statements in Philippians. And it's this. For, verse 21, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. So he ends verse 20 by saying this, Christ will be magnified in my body, whether by life or by death. And then he says, speaking of life and death, let me tell you how I approach these two. Let me tell you what these mean to me. And these are the two possible outcomes. Certain outcomes, salvation and the magnification of Christ. Possible outcomes, life or death. But those don't affect the certain outcomes. He says these certain outcomes will happen whether or not I live or die. And then he says why. He says for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Well, what does that mean? Very briefly, he summarized this. To live is Christ, to die is gain. If we could fill that out a little bit more, we could say Paul's life was completely identified with Christ. There was no concept of Paul apart from Christ. His whole life, what was it all about? It was about Christ. And then, therefore, dying, what was it? It was advantageous to Paul. It would place him in an even better situation, and he goes on to explain what that would be. He explains in more detail these two options. But, but before we get to the, those, uh, that more explanation, we need to think about this verse because it's one of the best known and most quoted in, in Philippians. But oftentimes the two parts are disconnected from each other. Um, we quote it and, and we, we focus on that, that second part. To die is gain. And we, we pull this out at funerals, and quite appropriately, because at funerals we're, we're facing death, we're thinking about death. But we, we often disconnect it from the first part of it. And these two parts go together. For me to live is Christ, therefore to die is gain. Decades ago, maybe 30 decades, three decades, not 30, three decades ago, 30 years ago, um, I, I was listening to um, a teaching by R.C. Sproul, uh, a pastor in our denomination who passed away, and a well-known author. And his son was young at the time, and so this is, this is a while ago. His, his children are grown. And um, he was trying to, to emphasize to his son and understand what his son understood about salvation. And he said, son, what, what will happen to you after you die? And his son said, well, I'll be in heaven. And he said, well, why will you be in heaven? And the son said, as if it was obvious, Dad, I'll be in heaven because I'll be dead. And, and R.C., the, being the theologian, it struck him that that is the, the modern approach to salvation. That's the United States approach to salvation. What do you have to do to be saved? You just have to die. And he realized his, his son was, he, he was afraid that his son believed in justification by works, because we think that that's what most people believe in, right? 
They believe that if you're good enough, then you can, you can get to heaven. You can, you can be in God's presence. You can be right before him. And that certainly, that certainly is very common. But he was seeing that there was actually something even more common that his son inadvertently expressed. And that is, all you need to do to be with God is to die. And I, I've been to many funerals. I've done more funerals than I'd, I'd like to have. But I've been to many funerals where, where all of a sudden, this person who had no interest in God, no interest in Christ, all of a sudden, this person is enjoying the glories of heaven. Why? Well, because he's dead. Justification by death. In other words, th this verse is being severed. You see, we need to keep these two together. Dying is gain if and only if living is Christ. You see, if, if life has no reference to Christ, then we ought not to either suppose that dying will be gain or give that hope of gain to others. These two things go together. Dying is gain only if living is Christ. And now he goes on and tells us what that means for living to be Christ. In verse 22, he spells it out a bit more. If I am to live in the flesh, here you go, that means, that means fruitful labor for me. So what does it mean to live as Christ? It means to be fruitful, fruitful labor. And then he, he says that, um, that if, if, if he dies, that will be gain. He goes on in verse 23, because it is being with Christ. So Paul says, here's my, here's my approach to life. It is fruitful labor for Christ. Here is my approach to death. It is being immediately in the presence of Christ. And that's why dying is gain. And he says, you know, if, if I had to choose, so he kind of does something hypothetical. It's not really up to him, but he says, hypothetically, if it were up to me, I would choose dying because that's very much better. That's being with Christ immediately. It's not up to Paul, but he says, if it were up to me, I would do that. He says, yet which shall I choose? I cannot tell. I am hard pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ for that is far better. But he says, as long as I'm here, this is what it means to live as Christ. It means to be fruitful for Christ. And then he spells that out even further. Verse 24, he says, to remain in the flesh, to remain alive is more necessary on your account, on your account. So now he's getting more personal. It's not generally being fruitful. It's being fruitful in investing in other people. He's saying, my life is for your benefit. It's on your account. This fruitfulness is in your life. And so now we see a picture of what it means for our lives to be Christ. It means to serve others by leading them to Christ and helping them to grow and rejoice in Christ. Notice how he talks about this here. He says, I, I, I'm certain of this. Verse 24, he says, uh, to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all. And here he's expressing his expectation that he actually is going to get out of prison. I know that I will remain and continue with you all for what? Your progress and what else? Verse 25, joy in the faith. How did he start this section? I will rejoice, but I'm taking some others along with me on this journey of joy. That's why I'm here. 
I'm going on my way rejoicing, but I'm not going to do it alone. I am going to invest my life in your progress in the Christian faith and your joy in the Christian faith. So there we have it. What does it mean to live as Christ? It means taking others along with you on this journey of joy so that they can rejoice in Christ even as you are. But notice that this this joy, as we saw last week, it is tied at least partially to circumstances. He says, for your progress in joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. Remember the Philippians were concerned about poor Paul. Oh, poor Paul. He's in prison. He can't preach the gospel. And Paul says, on the contrary, my being in prison has accelerated the preaching of the gospel. Oh, poor Paul. He must be struggling in prison. And Paul says, struggling is some rejoicing because all of this is, is moving me towards salvation and the magnification of Jesus in my body. And he says, and I want to take you all along that journey as well. And I know that my being restored to you again is the, is the thing that will give you maximum joy and maximum progress in the faith. And so I am convinced that that is what is going to happen, that he would be released. And if we are reading history correctly, he was indeed released and had some more years of gospel ministry uh, among the Philippians and among others. Now, this, this final, final cause here says, I want you to be joyful. I want you to progress in the faith. And he says, finally, the ultimate thing is so that you may have cause to boast, to boast. It's translated here to glory, which is a fine translation, to boast or to glory in Christ Jesus. And once again, um, language takes on different meanings as language evolves. But, but when we think about boasting, it's kind of hard for us to think about boasting because we associate boasting with just bragging about ourselves. And so, uh, but this is a concept that actually comes out a decent amount in Paul about boasting. What is our boast? And we could translate it exalting in, delighting in, glorying in. And he says, that's what I want for you all, Philippians. I want to be among you again so that I can be an instrument, not of you boasting in me, but of boasting in Jesus, of exalting in Jesus and delighting in Jesus and glorying in Jesus. It's hard for us to think about boasting in a, in a positive way because of our negative associations with boasting. Um, we, we do some, some vicarious boasting, don't we? We, we? we bask in the excellences of others. And if we're sports fans, we do that all the time, don't we? Right? I'm sure the, the sale of, of Georgia Bulldog paraphernalia has just gone through the, the roof, right? And whoever wins the Super Bowl, they're, they're going, their fans are going to be strutting around with their, their caps and their, their, their jerseys and their, their, uh, their, their stickers on their cars and so on. What are they doing? They're glorying in the excellences of their team. Now, uh, here's, the, here's the interesting thing about that. What did they do? What did they do? to contribute to the success of their team. A few of them may have done something, like maybe they were donors, you know, maybe they have season tickets, maybe they're on the 50-yard line cheering their team on, something like that. Maybe their son plays for the team. Maybe their, their cousin is a coach for the team. Maybe. But what did the vast majority of them do to contribute to the success of the team? I just saw it. Somebody did this. Nada. Nothing. So it's boasting in what somebody else did, as if we had done it 
ourselves. Parents tend to do that, right? That's more understandable for parents, right? We invest in our kids, and then when they have success, we, we take delight in that. We take pride in that. Well, we did contribute to that, and so that's more understandable. And so think about boasting, biblical boasting in this way. Not, not gratuitously taking glory that doesn't belong to you and applying it to yourself, but delighting in the glory of another. Not because you contributed to it, but because you are the beneficiary of it. It was done for you. It's to delight in Christ, to delight in the work of Christ, knowing that we add nothing to it, but only benefit from it. Maybe you heard years ago um, about Team Hoyt. Team Hoyt, it was a father-son uh, team, uh, athletic team. Uh, Dick was the dad and uh, Rick was the son. I just saw that Dick died uh, this past year at 80 years of age. But they competed in marathons. They competed in Ironman competitions, which are grueling uh, triathlon competitions. And, um, and they were quite a team. But the, the interesting thing about their teamwork was this. Dick, the father, was able-bodied, and Rick, the son, had a cerebral palsy. And so he wasn't able to swim, he wasn't able to walk, he wasn't able to run, he wasn't able to cycle, he wasn't able to do any of the things that are required in those competitions. And so Team Hoyt was the father and the son, the father pulling or pushing, uh, whatever, or, or having him on the bicycle with him, whatever it might be. It's an interesting, interesting team. And the father of that duo just, just died last year. But uh, it's interesting, if you think about that team, they, they won as a team whenever they would finish the race. And they were able to glory together in the victory of having finished the race. But let me ask you, who did all the work? You see, only one of them did all the work, but both of them got the victory. Both of them got to, to glory in the victory. Think about biblical boasting that way. Because Paul says, this is what I want for you, Philippians. This is what I want for you, Christians, that you would glory, that you would delight in the work of another, in the work of Jesus Christ. He does all the work. We get all the benefit, but we get to cross the finish line as well as we have faith in him and in the work that he has done for us. But let's pray. Our God, we all have our boasts. The things in which we glory, the things that we use to think ourselves better or look down on others. Lord, we, we pray, even as Paul prayed, may it never be that we would boast except in the cross of Jesus Christ. That we would be crucified to all those worldly boasts and that they would be crucified to us. That we would be able with single-minded devotion to live as Christ in this world that our lives would be so taken up with Christ, so taken up with investing in others that they might know Christ, so that they might rejoice in Christ, so that they might progress in Christ, that we could go on our way no matter what happens to us, go on our way rejoicing, knowing that you will take us across the finish line, a race that Christ has already won, a race after which Christ has already sat down at your right hand, and he calls us along and does all that is necessary so that we can cross that line too. And we pray that we would be able to take on this mentality, no matter what happens to us in this life, Lord. We ask what will happen, and the answer comes back, salvation and the magnification of Christ. If for us, 
to live as Christ. We trust, O oh God, and know that dying will be gain. We pray this in Christ's name.